Hello and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. My name is Andrew Ferris and today on the show, we're doing something we haven't done in a little while, too long some might say, which is have Taylor Holiday on to talk about all kinds of things. Taylor, say hi to the people. What up everybody? There it is. There it is, there it is. It's become a meme. Um, so uh, Taylor's on the show and look, there's a lot to talk about. We just, we haven't talked in a while uh, on the show and actually I would say Taylor, you and I have maybe talked work generally less than usual. So there's a lot to catch up on. Um, and that's what we're gonna do. We've got a list I've got on my on my second monitor here, 10 different topics. I don't know how many of them we'll get through, but we'll just kind of rapid fire. Just kind of a what's on your mind show. I actually, just looking at the list of topics, we're getting to do attribution, you know, big picture stuff like that, attribution, <laughs> in, in, industry-wide stuff like uh, debt and, yeah. and those things. And then really tactical stuff like Shopify audiences, Maybe we'll get in there. We'll see. We got Google Performance Max. I have a really specific comment about Facebook remarketing. You know, so we'll see. So we go big. We'll go broad. We'll go uh, bitter and angry. Twitter wars. We'll are, go... we gonna, are we going to cover me rage quitting our fantasy league? Or are we? Gonna... <laughs> well, I wasn't going to bring it up. Okay. But, uh, we could start there if you want. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's no no further delay needed. You know Taylor. He's the CEO of, of Common Thread Collective, and uh, that's who he is. That's why he's here. Let's do it. All right, Taylor, topic number one, rage quitting our fantasy baseball league. Let's go. <laughs> no, uh, I think we, we save that for a whole episode. But, uh, okay, that's probably good. Uh, there's nothing people love hearing about more than other people's fantasy, fantasy sports leagues. It's the best topic in the world. All right, so um, there really is a lot of stuff we could talk about. I think we just jump right into the attribution wars because it's, it's, it's been a live topic on Twitter. But, um, and look, we're, I don't, I don't, really care about stirring the pot or anything like that. Uh, but but as it happens, I also just recorded an episode and released an episode all about an attribution issue of really impacting a business. And I happen to have some inside information here that, uh, that our um, data uh, update in the next week is going to start including a split. Maybe it's this week, maybe it's soon, but we're working towards including splits between new customer revenue and returning customer revenue over time and AMER as a metric, which I was actually talking about this with somebody. Was that Dave? Or was that me? Am, who, who was the? I heard about it first from you. Uh, you yeah. may have heard it from Dave. I don't know, but you guys definitely started tracking it first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely not something that was new for us to track, but I think that the freight, the word AMER actually, or like that acronym might have, I think I fired it off in a Slack comment one time, just as a simple way of talking about it. And anyway, it doesn't matter, but now it's caught on, which I'm happy about. So, um, so, but so anyway, basically like, you know, there's this whole conversation going right now about sort of attribution and what is needed and what is not. And in my episode, what I, what I saw happen for a business um, was that a business drastically underestimated the value of its Facebook spend because the reporting that they saw in Facebook's dashboard was not, was simply, there was too much signal loss. It was not showing them all of the value that they were getting. And it was really hard to see. You had to really dig in. In fact, I was fully planning on going into a call with these people to tell them your Facebook spend has never been profitable when I was prepping this. In fact, I think you and I even talked about this in prepping it, Taylor, um, when you looked at this business briefly with me. And then I switched and I ended up saying the opposite, which was like, you should never have turned off your Facebook spend. It was actually crushing for you um, the more that I dug into it. So um, so there's this whole question out there right now about sort of like clarity to attribution. Um, and and then of course, like third-party uh, software like um, Rockerbox, Northbeam, and um, Triple Whale are the big three. Um, and and sort of, sort of like understanding what's happening in your spend. And, and what I was gonna say was that in our data update, in our data newsletter, if you're not signed up for the data newsletter, go do that. Um, there's a link in the show notes. Um, we we are seeing across our stores something interesting, which is that Facebook ROAS year over year, last 90 days, down like mm, 25 plus percent. Uh, but AMER, so like blended ROAS, acquisition, new customer revenue over total spend is only down like 3%. Um, and that's a really interesting thing because that, that would seem to indicate that perhaps one of the things going on there, and this doesn't explain all of it, is that there actually is better performance than people realize. So anyway, it's a really big topic right now. Say what you want to say. <laughs> um, I mean, there's too many questions, right? Like, just just go. Just like, yeah. yeah. So I think it's important to take a step back uh, and go, what is attribution? Like, literally to start at the root. And uh, attribution is an attempt to sign, assign responsibility or cause of a purchase to advertising touch points, okay? 
And if we just assert that as the underlying premise that all the things are attempting to do, we need to understand that there is no right answer to the assignment of value. Now, here's what I mean, okay? Right would be, in a scientific term, the ability to reach a consensus in a replicable format where we could show and repeat the outcome over and over and over again. Um, that does not exist. This is really important. That does not exist. There are individual opinions about the best way to do this, but there is no objective consensus. So whether I'm talking or you're talking or anyone's talking, we all need to acknowledge that this is an individual opinion. But in that is a really critical sort of uh, piece of understanding, which is that the answer at this moment in human history is an unknowable answer. There is no actual way to correctly assign attribution. And if you think about just take a step back and go, what is it? Why is that so hard? Well, it's because there's, we are only dealing with a tiny subset of the data points that affect people's decision-making, which is like the seeing of ads. But there are so many other things that happen, right? That involve individual financial issues, conversations with friends, you know, like walking by and seeing somebody that I like using something cool. There's a million unknowable data points in this actual customer journey. So the idea that we think that just these ads are the only part of it is where it all falls apart right from the start. And this is why I think when I see these like really emboldened takes that attribution is providing you some definitive answer, I'm like, this is just wrong. So um, that's, that's really important. And how I know this, like if you go Google, it's important to know that there have been hundreds of attribution platforms that existed for many years. So this is not new at all. Like I remember, and Dave, uh, the tweet that I put out about this originally talked about how every, every um, marketer goes on this journey thinking they're gonna solve attribution because it feels really important. And you go really far down the rabbit hole and then you come out the other side and realize that there is not an answer and then you release it and you move on to sort of a deeper understanding of demand generation and demand capture and what channels roles are in that. And you, you release this, this need to know. But I remember when I was on the need to know path and I remember ending in calls where the primary value proposition of the people on the other side was how many PhD scientists and mathematicians and Mensa level people were in the organization. Like that's how they sold the product. Because I, I was on this call with you. I remember this, this was early CTC. I mean, yep. there were probably still eight of us in an office at that point. Yep. And I remember this, the, the, the pitch included a person bragging about how their like data team leads guy had won a bunch of math awards. Yes. Know? Like that, that's the end of this rabbit hole is it becomes so complex that you, you basically try and out IQ everybody um, in the, in this way. But the, but what it signals is that we've come now full circle where there's a bunch of new things saying they do the same thing as the old things in some new novel way that still creates the same level of confusion, misunderstanding. So what I like to do uh, to help to root this out. And I think there's two sort of things. There's like, what is the problem with the premise for in-platform decision-making? And then what is the sort of general problem? So one, I put out this, Thing on the hierarchy of metrics. So I like to move from concrete and objective down into the mushy, un, like more disputed, right? And so when I think about that, at the most concrete objective level is money, right? Is the dollars in your bank account. Um, and even this, we have to understand that like from an accounting principle is flawed because there's a distinction between the accrual of revenue and the realization of it. So as an example, PayPal doesn't pay you every day. So the actual realization of your cash is not actually even as clean as like the Shopify revenue number. So this is all really hard, but the most objective in my mind is like your realized revenue um, in in your Shopify account, ideally even further than that on a cash basis, but, uh, but that minus the cost that you paid to achieve it, minus the dollars you paid on the ads, what I would call contribution margin. So in other words, how many net dollars do I have to cover my operating expenses after a transaction has occurred um, for some period of time? And again, that's not perfectly objective, but it's more concrete than any reported metric somewhere. It's real, it's real dollars. And I think that's to me a starting point in the conversation is to move from objectivity into subjectivity and to allow the subjectivity to be the place where we hold the loosest, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because this, what I think about with this is sort of the way that marketing budgets work in the world is like usually as a percentage of total revenue. And the notion is like you forecast a revenue number and you, and then you build a budget off of that basically. And, and you're sort of in some ways answering two questions at the same time. One of them is, um, 
you're you're saying like, how much money can we spend on marketing is one question. But then the other question is like, how much money would it require us to spend on marketing to achieve this revenue number? And you're sort of throwing those both together. And that, that always used to seem kind of silly to me because it felt like, wait a minute, why don't you just not spend the marketing money if it's not going to like, if, you know, if, if you're not sure it's going to actually help you produce that revenue, wouldn't you be more profitable? But what is actually baked into that way of forecasting your future in some ways is that, especially the bigger you get and the more omni-channel you are, is that is that there's a recognition that, that the marketing dollars are helping, but there's no way you're going to be able to measure it perfectly, which is why, like, especially at real scale, what people are measuring is like views, engagement, sort of the, the most objective things that you can put on those um, media buys. And, and then assuming that that will ladder into purchases, generally speaking, and checking that primarily by the revenue number, essentially. So, so the job becomes very specifically tied to the, to the, um, to the media buy around these issues of, of views and that sort of thing. And that might also be because maybe it's more of a brand budget. So that, that's like kind of one of the things I think here is that that's why people do it that way. Because you if you try to break it all down into the, this very specific super causal relationship, first of all, you're really direct response reliant at that point. But then secondly, um, you know, it's just probably not going to really get you there all, all the way that you want to go. So, um, and even on another element, like with, with something like Facebook, like what I would say is, Revenue is the ultimate check on all this. The thing, the reason people are buying Facebook ads is because it's really, 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 really easy to see how that ends up powering the growth of your business, especially in the early stages, right? It's like, it's just like when we were at Kalo, right? And it's like, you could just see very, or, or just take now with Bamboo Earth. Like, it's like as Bamboo Earth has continued to do very well over the last few months, the reason why is not because Facebook told us a ROAS number. In fact, Facebook's ROAS number is nonsense. It's nonsense on our on Baby Worth ads on a day to day level. Like I think on the aggregate, it's still telling you something, or at least directional. Um, but what I can see with those numbers is the revenue. The revenue goes up, and it's new customer revenue in particular. And so that that's and so that is actually what everybody's using for the source of truth. That's right. So you move again from this objectivity of of money into what is another objective measure, which is. Uh, dollars spent and new customers acquired like customers and dollars are objective like and that's that to me is why I anchor myself there is to say the cost of a new customer against the value of their first order minus their cost of goods has to be positive for me if we're baby worth we're trying to get to break even or a few dollars above that first order profitability and so that to me is the I call it the law we can't break the law right the, everything below that is sort of a guiding principle it's more like um, like what the distinction between like uh, 65 miles an hour on the freeway is sort of like a guiding principle that, it, but like at some point you break the law and maybe that's the bad example because the law probably is 65 example, but you get my point is that there's, there's these places where it's like, you know, there's a thing you absolutely cannot do, which is go exceed your cost of a new customer in aggregate. And then there's like the Facebook ROAS that corresponds with that. And they're different things. Um, so now this gets more complex, the wider you go. So Laws and objectivity are contribution margin, cost of a new customer, AMER and MER, which are functions and measures of those things, right? And then you get into this question, which is you still have to make a decision at the platform level, and I respect that. But here's what I want and where experienced marketers, I think, have an advantage here is you begin to understand enough time which of these platforms are generating incremental demand and which are siphoning or trying to capture existing demand in different ways. So I'll give you a perfect example of this. I That's 100% right. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I've worked with um, a company that does, I think, some of the best media mix modeling. So media mix modeling is this attempt to um, do holdout and incrementality studies of each channel to assign a weighted value to each channel. I think it's a it's a generally a good principle for making decisions between channels. So should I spend on Facebook versus Google? And they've done holdouts of every isolated channel of the media funnel. And you would be shocked to find out that the most incremental channel, Facebook prospecting on a click basis with excluding existing customers. It's the purest incremental channel. Guess what's second? Non-branded search. Guess what's like, you could move down the funnel. It's exactly third. what you would think. It's exactly what you would expect. Third is remarketing of website visitors, excluding existing customers. And then fourth is reactivation of lapsed customers. And then fifth is retention of existing customers. And then way down the line is branded search. And so I don't need to pay $500,000 to a media mix model uh, group to tell me that. Like I have spent enough ad dollars in enough places to understand that Facebook is demand creation, Google's demand capture, and that no search just happens out of nowhere. Searches begin with some creation of intent. 
Um, and that has to happen. Now, um, where TikTok fits into that, and as you get more, so like that can be useful. I'm open to the idea of trying to assign value between channels for the sake of allocating your dollars. Um, I, I, I actually think that that can be helpful. Where I have a real problem is the decision-making in platform, okay? And th that is because- I, I, Yeah. This is where I think I am like in the most resistant to the way that people are presenting this as a tool to decide which ads inside of an ad account to spend on. And I just put out this tweet and I'm not done stoking the fire. You're less confrontational than I am. I'm not afraid to be confrontational here, but, uh, but the reality is the formula for Facebook's ad auction system. So the way you win an auction and winning an auction means get delivery, right? Like if you want delivery for your ad, Facebook is very transparent about the formula. Total value equals advertiser bid times estimated action rate plus user value, okay? An estimated action rate for a conversion optimized ad is estimated click-through rate times click-to-conversion rate plus relevancy quality factors. The only data point that Facebook has for your click-to-conversion rate are the conversions that they themselves have been able to track. So if you want to win auctions, you want to improve your total value score, it doesn't matter what some other platform says. If Facebook doesn't see it, you won't have a higher total value score and you won't win more auctions or be able to scale the ad and get better delivery. So if you want a predictive value, you want to think about what is going to improve ad performance in the future, it has to be on the data that the platform has. There's no other way to optimize. There's also this baked in assumption that I am going to do well with the attribution information as a media buyer. Like that, that essentially that like, let's say I'm auto bidding on Facebook and, and I see, you know, a third party software, whichever one I use, I see that as a media buyer telling me, oh, this campaign's producing 20% more conversions than Facebook says it is or something like that, that I am going to respond to that information rationally and in a way that actually creates value for myself, as opposed to I am going to screw up the analysis and probably make poor decisions in platform and misunderstand what the, what uh, backwards looking metrics are actually predictable and which ones are not. And that's the other thing is like, this is where like, I think you and I are totally aligned here about like, we're such big fans of, you know, cost cap bidding and that sort of thing, because we're saying like, get my brain out of the equation. I don't want more insights for my brain. What I want is to trust that um, if I can uh, find the right cost cap or min ROAS target or whatever for my campaigns, um, if, if I can find those by comparing the value being created um, that Facebook sees relative to the actual revenue it's producing, but when I find that right spot, then I will set my cost cap and I will get out of the way and I will spend my time on creative um, because that's actually where the value is really created. And and I think that's the other element. Um, John Max Bowling told me on a call uh, a week or two ago, really smart guy. He, he told me um, he's working on some tools totally unrelated to attribution, but he, he was working on some tools. And he said like, my feel for e-commerce people is that they're drowning in insights and starving for execution. And I think that's a, another element of this too, which is that like the last thing most people need is, is more info. And kind of my response to this whole conversation was to, to ask the question out there like, okay, who has used one of these tools and actually changed their business outcomes? And I yeah. got like very, very few responses. I had a, a couple and good for them. I'm sure somebody's using them effectively, right? They're not totally worthless. But like I got very few responses of people who could like meaningfully tell me a way in which that was ab absolutely changing an outcome. Yeah, well, well so, so this, this is part of the thing. Like, and I think this is, I don't think Austin would mind me sharing, but uh, early on the North Beam team came to me at CTC and talked about Statless and they wanted to combine uh, our companies in a way and go out and do this together. Is they're good people. I, I understand what they're doing in the product. I consciously chose not to, not because I didn't think what they were doing was cool or the, anything, but I think attribution is a quagmire. I think it pulls you into That's the right. wrong obsessions. You begin to try to spend, and it, it sucks so much time and energy away from exactly what you're describing, which is the execution of improving the product of the business. Like you don't, attribution is a thing you worry about when you're at the threshold of death. And you're at the threshold of death, not because of attribution, but because the product isn't good enough, the business isn't there, the margins aren't right, all of the things. And so it sucks you into this vortex of a problem that when I see businesses, what I see is like the fundamental answer to the attribution problem is to be so right that you can allow for a margin of error in your reporting that it doesn't matter, right? And, and it just tends to suck the focus in such yeah, a way really that good. it creates argument 
and debate in a way that you can't actually be right. So why would we spend time arguing about a thing that we can't actually be right about? <laughs> you know, it's like- and it's, if, you, if you took that time and reinvested it into creating, even aside from the product, if you're, just, if you're gonna put it into ads either way, if you've got somebody on your ads team who that's their job, if you reinvested that time into creating great process for creative development and uh, creative execution, and uh, a smooth process for generating assets and turning them into ads at scale and you know consistency uh, with you know all that kind of stuff like that would be a way better use of your time, you know. Yep, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. To, to your point, it's a much bigger lever, and th that's before you even talk about the things you're talking about, which is like product, brand, you know, all of those kinds of things, margin, all that. Okay, yeah. uh, I, I think that's. I think we've. I think we've. We've covered it. We've got it. Yep. Um, so okay, we got a lot of stuff on this list. You want to go next? You want? I, I kind of brought up the first one because I think we were yeah. both on the attribution thing. Why don't you? Why don't you? Why don't you take us to topic number two? Topic number one is attribution. Topic number two, go. Yeah. So I think I like um, to talk about a tweet that Matab put out the other day. Um, and for those of you that don't know, so Matab works at Carta Ventures. They do a lot of distressed deals. So what is a distressed deal? It means the business is in trouble for some reason. Whether Just, that's the, the most, still the most criminally underfollowed Twitter user in the world. Like yeah. Matab is like, he's a really bright dude. I remember after the first call I had with him, Taylor, like I called you right away and was like, dude, and it's about the stuff that you're talking about. Like he just has this view to what's going on with businesses that is unlike anybody else's because he's buying distressed businesses and he's yeah. really bright. Because he, what it means is when they break, he shows up so he knows why they break, right? And he has clarity of what's causing failure, uh, which is a really important piece of insight. And so he, he put out this tweet that says, deal flow plus consulting asks up four to five X. First of all, bad sign for our industry. The number of distressed businesses through the roof, okay? Catalysts for D2C in distress. One, CAC out of control due to iOS, okay? Uh, that feels a bit scapegoaty, but... The, the CAC out of control, followed by an assumption of why. Okay, cool. Supply chain delays, hammered cash flow, plus container costs themselves going up. Well-documented things that people are aware of. The third one is the thing I'm interested in talking about. Third point, credit now drying up. Unsecured lenders pulling the rug out from companies after making empty promises. Okay. So I think from what I have seen that there is a looming debt crisis in the e-commerce world that's bubbling up, that as capital becomes way less available, we are going to start to see the effects of all this ClearBank and Wayflyer and ShopPay and PayPal loans that a bunch of people have been getting and accessing because capital was cheap that suddenly aren't gonna be available to them and it's going to be a big problem. Um, so this is exactly what I called you about after my talk with Metab. Is that you know there's all this capital out there and they're all all the lending is built off of like we plug into your shopify store and we can project your revenue off of your past revenue and then we'll give you that money to use on ads and uh and that's what you have to use it for right and so your debt is specifically used for ads as long as you do that we're going to get our money back that's basically the, the the notion of these of these lenders and the money is not particularly cheap but it was really freely available um and uh, and in an early stage, you can imagine it being useful as a tool for some people potentially. Yeah. Um, we, you know, at four four hundred, we had, we yep. had, we've we took a couple of these though, not in huge numbers. Though we had a conversation about taking a huge number at one point, and we had a, a board member. It's available to us. Yeah, and we had a board member suggest like stay away, basically. Now, um, and I, I think that was that was great advice. But the um, the um, the thing that's really interesting too to talk when you talk to Maytab about this is that um, his suggestion was that as those as those lenders popped up early on, they did that without some of them. He's I think he's okay with me saying this uh, without chief risk officers in the company essentially like writing these loans without really any great ways to go get the money, and so like for these distressed businesses some of the lenders don't actually have a way to get their money back because like the covenants are like very weak. And, and that is where this becomes like, uh, I, I remember actually when I called you about this, like my immediate response was like, is this the, is this the, mortgage um, crisis of is, the this, is, is this the mortgage crisis, right? Where there's like somebody who's a player here, who's funneling a ton of the cash. Any man yeah. Yes. Who has this fundamentally unsound thing underneath the loans they're writing? Yep. 
and nobody really realizes it's there except for a few folks. That's right. And, like they're going to collapse and that's going to create all of these problems for all of these people. Um, I, I don't think that's out of the question. Like, I don't, I don't know what, the, like it's, the system is too big for me to understand what all the like second and third order effects of that would be. But like, I, it's a real concern. I, so I, um, I have only anecdotal data here because I don't have not dug into the sort of status of the quality of the debt and the loans that exist in all of e-commerce. But if I was a reporter, this is the number one story I would look into because I believe based on the, the experiences that I have with our own credit facilities with these companies, the interactions and the ways that they're attempting to get the money back from us. I know what it sounds like when a bank tries to get money from you. And I know what it sounds like when some of these lenders try and get money from you and what their available resources are when you have unsecured debt that they can't lean on my home. They can't come take my inventory. They basically have no available lever to come and get the money. Now, the other thing that's hiding the default rate, because generally speaking, what would be a signal to a debt crisis is rising default rate. But here's the thing. A lot of these like clear bank style loans, they actually have first right on the revenue. So they actually take the money right off of the top of your Shopify revenue, okay? So the thing that happens last is actually the default of the loan. What would actually happen first is the company goes out of business, right? And so what, what the signal is gonna be is not gonna be the loan default rate in many cases because they get all the revenue coming in first. And so maybe that helps the lenders not go broke like the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac folks, but what it does is the businesses suffer and they can't pay it. They, at the end of the day, when they give that money away after the cost of goods, after CAC, there's no money left and the business shuts down before you default on the loan. Well, maybe. Although one of the things that, again, from talking to Maytime about this a little bit, is that it's possible that actually that these loans are written in such a way where like even that order of repayment changes in ways that are not so favorable to, or there's potential like bankruptcy options here that are like, that are going to favor small these smaller businesses in particular in a way that you wouldn't expect. So, I mean, I don't, I just am not sophisticated enough. I haven't looked, I've, I have this, I know I've had a conversation and read some of his writing and that's basically it. Um, and he's been pretty public about all this. So I don't think, I don't think it's a problem, but like the, um, yeah, I, you know, I, either way, your point is taken. Like, I, I think the, the like, canary in the coal mine here potentially is just like deal flow to Maytab. <laughs> like that's like, well, that's, exactly, that's, that's, what, that's like, that's what you said, right? That's like, exactly what it is. Is that right. four to five X the increase in distressed e-commerce businesses? Look, and I, I can tell you in this, in our own portfolio. Oh, of course I've, yeah. Right? Like I can see the amount of businesses that I, and you know, the construct of the kind of business that's struggling, right? Like we, we could outline it exactly. Struggling margins, over-dependence on Facebook as a single channel of revenue, right? Like poor LTV, like all the things that worked. Like, I think a perfect example is that there was this whole like industry of print-on-demand that existed, um, whether these were print-on-demand socks, print-on-demand photos, print-on-demand paintings, print-on-demand. There were all businesses that are sort of the perfect example of a type of business that existed in abundance in the 2016 to 2019 era that will not exist in the next one because there's no LTV, they're entirely dependent on uh, Facebook demand generation. They're highly competitive and commoditized. They're, there's very little pricing power and they're-, they're Highly large. seasonal, so they're cash, they're cash pains too. Like they're, they're gift products a lot of times, right? And so they're like, you have to figure out how to, to generate the inventory and all that. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a, those, I think that's totally right. It's totally dependent on sort of like media buying magic and that, that world is gone. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so I, I think that this is a real thing. Now, what it's going to do is like these sorts of flushes, I think, while costly to our industry, um, produce, I think, an evolved structure that is better. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, but I, I do think that there is like, there are some looming really bad stories about the number of businesses that are going out of business here That's in, right. the, in your future. And I wouldn't be surprised to see one of these big lenders disappear. Yeah. I agree. I agree, or at least massively change the way they're doing their lending and 
and yeah. growth pattern stuff. So and that's to say nothing of the consumer debt side of this, which I, you know, I don't know for those of you that listen to the all in podcast, but they were talking about that as there's a massive rising consumer credit crisis, which is you have, you know, coming out of an era where we all spent a ton of money and committed ourselves to dollars under the pretense of available cash that is now no longer available on the consumer side either. And then you had this in e-com, we had this giant layer of the affirms, the buy now pay letters, the, you know, all of that crowd that a bunch of people went like, oh, you know, what's cool. 0% interest rate. I'll take this $5,000 couch that maybe is a stretch, but $500 a month for the next two years isn't that big a deal until it is when your stock market portfolio crashed 30% and you got margin called on some crypto and all of a sudden whatever happens, happens. And now you're in real trouble. And so I think you combine this sort of like business financial crisis potential with consumer credit financial potential and it's it's choppy. It's It's risky out there. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on. <laughs> happy, happy. Um, all right. Uh, okay, so here's something. This is like a, just a, a little reflection on um, freelancing uh, that has been from my personal experience recently. And I, I actually be curious about sort of how you approach this from a different side of things. But um, just something I've noticed as I've taken on some work, uh, both with clients at CTC in my freelance role there, as well as my own clients, is I've really noticed, uh, and something I sort of underestimated, how much learning curve there is in the first couple months of this kind of work um, and how much of a challenge that is when, when you are onboarding people to new. And I don't have like a huge reflection here, but it's just like a, a little thing I've noticed, which is like my worst work for clients is, is uh, not because I'm under efforting or because I'm bad is in the first couple months. Um, and it's because there's just so much, um, there's just so much, uh, learning that has to be done about a brand about who the who the uh like who the actual movers are in in an organization in terms of like who's who you need to be working with and who eats up your time and who doesn't and um you know learning a brand uh learning products learning how a business generates actual revenue and what they care about uh which is not always as obvious as it looks um all those things there just takes there's just time required um and i think the thing i've been thinking about it for is like um in relation to my own work, thankfully, I've worked with really gracious people who see, who understood that when they brought me on, and they're like, "Look, we're not ex we're not expecting like magic here." Um, but uh, I also talked to a, a a guy who was running an agency the other day who said um, he doesn't always like working with um, ecom founders very much because they expect magic, whereas he says his SaaS his SaaS clients expect. Um, they, they are more comfortable with longer term process. Uh, but like ecom founders, they, they want like magic quickly. Um, and, and that is really hard. And so you'll see like relationships, uh, agencies get bumpy early and with consultants be bumpy early when all they, when my experience, like all I really need is time. Like I just need, there's just this learning that has to happen no matter how good I am basically. And so anyway, it's just something I've noticed in these relationships that has been kind of a unique part of stepping into this in a way that I didn't really fully internalized before I started it. So I, so this is a, this is such an important topic. I, um, Chris Johnson, who's our director of growth strategy, he pointed out to me this really insightful thought the other day, which was this whole industry is a microwave industry. What I mean by that is nobody went to school for six years to become a, a Facebook ads marketer. Right. Um, and so the timelines in which the entire industry views itself are just absurd. They're absurd in the expectations of impact. They're absurd in the expectations of growth. They're absurd in the expectations of timing for employees that come in a company and expect to want to grow. Um, they're just built out of this false pretense under which this whole industry has just curved up in five years into a massive behemoth of a marketing world. And nobody's actually had to have a long horizon of anything. Um, but what you're talking about in terms, I think this is true for freelancers and employees. The biggest mistake I made in planning our business and the biggest mistake I see businesses make in planning this is they do not actually appropriately account for the cost of an employee or freelancer relative to their time to hire and time to full uh, utilization. Okay. So we used to, uh, as an example, let's just say you have a media buyer and they can handle up to four ad accounts. And so you go, okay. We're going to hire them in January. Cool. We can do $20,000 in revenue in January, $20,000 in February, $60,000 or $20,000 in March. That's $60,000 in revenue in the first three months against the cost of $7,000 a month, whatever it is. That's a great ROI. Okay. But here's the actual ROI. 
Month one, they can take zero clients. They're in onboarding for two weeks. The next week, they're in company-specific onboarding for a week, job-specific onboarding for two weeks. Maybe they can onboard one client in the first month. Maybe, maybe, okay? So that's a $5,000 return on a $7,000 cost, net negative. The next month, because onboarding is also the most time-consuming part of a client relationship, you can't actually do like four onboardings in one month. So maybe you add another one client. So we, the pacing of actual return of investment on an employee is actually not net positive for almost four to five months. Okay? And it also means there's a strong incentive to figure out longevity here because the, right. co the onboarding cost is That's so right. high. The more, you pay it, the more you pay it, the more you're in debt. That's so right, yeah. The same thing is true with agencies. This is why the, one of the good decisions that we made was to refuse um, month-to-month -month contracts at CTC, but anybody who pursues them, I think is so fundamentally setting up the relationship to fail. And you have to, I would say, spend more time, this is like a David Ogilvy principle too, spend more time in the assessment and then commit to the partner for a very long period of time under the assumption that you're going to have to work to make it work and alter your horizons of expectation, whether that's an employee, a freelancer, an agency partner. Oftentimes there is an inappropriate expectation of impact for the person. I watched one of our employees, okay, an awesome uh, growth strategist who took a job at a brand and was fired within 90 days of leaving CTC. And fundamentally, I believe it was the failure of the brand to set them up for success and the horizon of expected impact for the person that they were bringing to the role. There's no way that is a failure of an employee or individual in that instance. And I see this a lot. Growth marketers, come in, you got to fix the business. You're, you're the magic person to make our business grow. I would not want to walk into that situation at all. No chance. I mean, this is probably directly connected to the last conversation too, which is that businesses are in crisis and they're just like trying to find some kind of solution to it. And the solution they can think of is like a growth marketer who understands attribution or something like that, right. <laughs> you know, and that's totally the wrong answer. So yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Go. Um, okay. I fourth Topic time. number four. Um, what was the other ones I gave you? You've I mean, got, uh, you've got on your list, Shopify audiences, Bamboo Earth updates, Google performance okay. max. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's do Shopify audiences because I think this is a big topic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I was just part of the reason I put this on here is I was just listening to Toby Lukey um, on um, a podcast this morning, who I always love to listen to. I think he's incredibly th thoughtful. Uh, he was on the. I, I, I totally agree. I, he's he's like he's so helpful. I think. I think he's I think he's a brilliant leader. Uh, but so he was on um, the Invest Like the Best podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. If you want to listen to it. Um, so he gets asked, Patrick asks him about his responsibility to help with distribution, with marketing, basically. Um, and it's interesting, his response uh, is, is basically that he doesn't primarily see this as Shopify's responsibility uh, to solve this part of the problem for the business owner. Um, he references how it can be solved in so many myriads of different ways uh, and that they want to focus on the parts of the, the supply chain and ecosystem that are consistent across every business type and da, 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 da. it felt like a little bit of an obfuscation of responsibility, but um, he brought up Shopify audiences and he poo-pooed it in a way that like, I think is exemplary of its actual potential impact. And we got to be a part of the very early uh, beta for Shopify audiences. And I, I asked them a question early on, which was like, hey y'all, you see this little checkbox that Facebook has here where it says that it's going to expand any audience that you give them to whatever they want in order to you get the best outcome possible, how does this affect the idea of audience targeting? And they're like, oh, I don't know, we gotta look into it. But I think more and more, anytime you see someone, and this is true, this is another, I hear this, I'm even in an argument with John Max right now on Twitter about the idea that um, one of the values of attribution systems is to create custom audiences. <clears throat> anytime that you assert that you are gonna aggregate a group of people based on some set of data inputs that you have that is going to outperform the set of data inputs that Facebook has, I am out. I am out. It, it is such a flawed premise in my mind um, that, that the signals of intent that are based on engagement with the ad, all the other user social graph behaviors and everything else are gonna be trumped by your top 10% highest value customers or whatever, like this or the Shopify ecosystem when Facebook has a pixel on every Shopify website on the internet is just like so fundamentally flawed that like it is pure marketing nonsense to me. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's totally right. Like it's, it's like, like, you know, when people think about the idea of targeting and they're like, well, yeah, but our customer is like, uh, 
you know, a 35 to 44 year old female or whatever. It's like, who's interested, who's interested, who's interested in, you know, Disney or it's just like, yeah. Like what, what do you, like, do you, do you even begin to understand how much data is going? Like, it's just, it's so silly. And and the funny thing about this Shopify audience tool is it's, it's not at all new in terms of like, in terms of what it is. Remember the co-ops thing? I was just going to bring this up. Like we got sold on this early. Like people would do this thing. They call it data co-ops. And the idea was like everybody opts in and they share audiences. And the notion is like, hey, there's all these people who come to your store interested in your product and they don't buy um, uh, because they, they have something else. So like you can share that audience with this with other stores. They can share you, their audiences with you. And you can target people who are in market for your product that way. And, you know, there's an obvious problem here, first of all, which is that like, uh, you know, I don't really want to share the people interested in my store with my competitors, but, uh, but even besides that, it didn't work. Like it just didn't work. It just, it didn't perform very well. Like, and so, so it would be like really expensive click. It just, it just wasn't there. So Facebook can do that already on its own basically. And there's just no need to, to layer another thing on it. So I'm with you. I, 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 I like, we played with Shopify audiences at, when I was still at 4,400 for like yeah. a couple of weeks. And it was like, that ah, didn't do anything, throw it out. Why not test it? But like, right. It, and, and I think what we're discovering is like, there's nothing new under the sun. Like all of these tactics, whether it's attribution or new audiences have been being sold to us for marketers for years now. Like those co-ops, that was such a big thing. I remember same sort of client pressure. Ooh, we've got to get the pixel data from brand da, 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 to be able to advertise to them. And it's like, do you not understand that Facebook has the pixel data? They, you're, you're literally saying, can you get the data that Facebook has and give it to me so I can give it to Facebook? And you're like, they literally know everybody who's shopping for North Face. And like, it's <laughs> yeah. this, the premise yeah. is so, but it, it reflects a desperation that I empathize with. I understand why people want to do it. But I think every time we try and uh, like absolve ourselves of the responsibility of going to right. make the That's business right. better right. and try and find a hack that solves it, we've That's lost right. the way. That's right. And, yeah. And, I mean, that's exactly what my reflection on this comment was, which is like, like, Again, the actual, like the, the, the thinking there is like, my product is awesome. I just can't seem to get it in front of the right people. And that's not your problem. It's not your problem. You right. can get it in front of the right people and it takes no work to do it. Broad audiences, let Facebook figure it out. Like that's the answer. Um, and anybody who's telling you otherwise is wrong. Don't be seduced by it. Like right. spend your time improving the fundamentals of your business, you know, in terms of all of the stuff that we talk about with the anti-fragile kind of framework. And then um, and then on the, on the media buying side specifically, spend your time on building creative the way that you need to build it and, and message the way you need to build it. It's a marketing challenge. It's not, it's not an audience targeting challenge. And, and this is, and the reason I can say this so confidently is because I work with a hundred brands and I watch them all use the same platform and some of them crush still today, smashing the platform, winning, driving revenue outcomes and others not. And one of them, and it's not because one is using Shopify audiences as one is not, right? Oh. I watch Bamboo Earth. And we've run our own brands and done this, right? Like, yeah. I, I just, I'm watching it play out in front of me. Like I can see who's winning and who's not and what the variables are in the delta of their performance. Like, and for none of them is the delta related to, ooh, they have a really clever targeting hack or like, ooh, they're all using $1 ad sets. Right? Like there's all, this has been the story forever where there has been some attempt to like, like so I remember like there's always, we, and this is so tempting because there's a case study out there. I remember forever, it was like YouTube or Taboola. Like you'd hear this like story about a brand who had this amazing case study and everybody would always like feel bad that they weren't that thing. And it's like, when we compare our behavior to the one edge case example, it's like, that's a really bad thing to chase. Believe your average. Like yes. essentially just like go, go chase the average. Yeah. Assume um, in that average. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I want to talk about omni-channel a little bit. This is, comes back to things I've talked about on the show a lot of times recently. Um, and I'm just kind of seeing this rubber band effect, which is that, uh, you know, in the early days of D2C, and I've talked about this here before, you know, the promise was cut out the middleman, cut out the middleman, own the customer data, and that will reduce costs, create a bunch of margin. And, uh, D2C will make a ton of sense that way, because now you don't need target or whatever, you know, um, you can go reach customers directly. They'll buy online. It's awesome. That was great. And there was a little while where that worked. Uh, you know, um, now the problem is over time, there actually has become a middleman. Uh, that middleman is Facebook and they are, and costs there are expensive. And so that's where your margin goes instead. Um, and, uh, and so there isn't a clear answer there. However, D2C is still viable in its own way. Um, and there you go. 
what, what I've seen happen in the challenge related to like pure play D2C is that people have increasingly gone towards other channels. For example, people I think in general are much more open to Amazon than they were earlier. They used to think of Amazon as sort of cannibalizing their own customers. Most people now I think recognize that Amazon is incremental. That could be wrong. It just could be the people I hang around with. But, um, but I, my sense is that they go like, okay, actually we'll do Amazon also. There's a whole bunch of customers there. We'll get good there as well. And that's their first step towards something like Omnichannel because I do think Amazon is mostly incremental. Okay, so there's that. And then they're going like, wait a minute, why don't, like, wholesale is great. Wholesale, like, uh, when people buy, they rebuy a lot. And they buy in large amounts of dollars at the same time. And they repeat. And there's really good margin on that, actually. And if I can sell through it all, that's really good. And so they add wholesale. And then they're like, wait, big box. Those orders are really big. And, and, and international. And so they start adding these channels. And the thing that's so interesting about it to me is that... Um, in the initial days of pure play DTC, what my experience was was that the sort of idea was like was very sort of arbitragey in in the mindset. It was like, this is the easy channel, go do that, go exploit the easy channel, and that probably wasn't totally wrong in in those days. Um, and now I feel like there's a little bit of a pushback the other way, which is that like uh, some of these other channels are actually the easier ones. D 2 C is the really hard one; is not very viable in the same way. And so go do this. And what I've actually seen happen. Uh, from a couple of businesses I've looked at recently is that I now am a huge believer that businesses should, from an early stage, be pursuing genuine omni-channel revenue. If for no other reason that I have talked to brokers about businesses that I have been trying to sell, and they have told me when you have omni-channel revenue, just like when you have omni-traffic channels um, on your DTC, your valuation goes up. And there's a really obvious reason for this, which is that your business is de-risked. It's significantly de-risked. If one channel goes wrong, then use can hold on. Um, so that's, that's just true. You're so go, if you want to, to pursue a higher valuation, this is part of how you get a higher valuation with Omnichannel, um, for, for obvious reasons. Okay. So there's that, but at the same time, there then becomes this thing of like, Oh, that's the good channel. And D2C is the bad channel. And here's like my sort of obvious realization. There isn't a good channel and there isn't a bad channel. They all have good things. They all have bad things. They all have challenges. They all have problems. Yeah, I remember the, all the horror stories in the early days of, of wholesale. It was like, get out of these stupid wholesale relationships where if you don't sell through, they'll send you back 100,000 units and you won't know what to do with them. You know, I remember that. And that's actually true. <laughs> like, they will do that. At the same time, there's incredible amounts of value. But you know what happens if you're just D2C? It's possible that your Facebook spend really, really struggles and your business is like one of these businesses that's going to seek Maytab and say like, hey, we're distressed. We're in all kinds of trouble. Um, there isn't an easy channel. There isn't a hard channel. There's just good businesses built across multiple channels and value capture at all of those channels. Each one of them is hard and building a, a good business at its core run by talented people managing each channel ends up actually being the solution. Um, and that's probably not a short-term, easy arbitrage microwave game. That's a long-term game, but it ends up creating the most possible value you can create. And so from the beginning, if I was starting a DTC business today, I would totally start a DTC business, e-commerce business. I just would, um, I just would be thinking from day one about how I expand channels right away and try to do as good of a job as possible. Even if I, even if I didn't actually onboard them all right away, I'd, I'd be thinking about the timeline for doing it. I think that's that's great. I think the answer to so much of this goes back to this microwave mentality is that uh, any entrepreneur starting an e-commerce business right now should start with a 10-year horizon, not a three. That's exactly, that's 100% right. And if you do that, it fundamentally alters your behaviors, right? Because you begin to think about um, risk diversification. You think about the things that could kill you, right? Because you're playing in, like Toby Lukey again, uh, and this is a thing that Dane Sanders, who runs TMYD, talks to me about all the time. This idea, if you're playing an infinite game, and Toby talks about it at Shopify. He talks to his team all the time about trying to play the infinite game. We're not trying to play the finite game of make the stock price better in the next 90 days. We're playing the infinite game of make the best product forever, right? And when you do that, you just alter your behavior in such a way that the biggest thing you're trying to prevent against is not being able to play, not die. And when you think about that, now risk profiling is a thing that enters your your uh, uh, worldview a lot more. And exactly what you're describing, diversity of channel, uh, both a traffic channel and distribution channel um, become really important because if one turns off, you're still alive. You still get to keep playing the game. Now, the pendulum is going to swing where we're going to get into this like romanticizing retail thing again. And then a bunch of retailers are just going to white label some of these product or ship them back. And you're going to hear the stories. 
sense, right? How but, do you how do you think how do you think shipping is affecting large retailers right now? <laughs> like you know, supply chain problems. Like it's it's not like it's easier there, right? Like yeah, and that, that's, there's there. problems yeah. there too. You know, that's exactly why there's more value. Uh, why there's a higher shareholder value though, which is that um, if you have problems in one of those spaces, you could potentially endure them if you have healthy business units on the other if, on the other channels. That's right. So if it's my capital, you're you. Exactly. You're de-risking my capital when I give it to you. So that's why there's a higher value for sure. Um, so I, I, now, is that harder from a cash flow management? Yes. Does it require nightmare things like ERP systems and more complex operations and logistics? It does. But guess what? Like the obstacle is the way. Solving for the complex problem is directly related to the value of the thing that you create at the other side. When you solve simple problems, that's not very valuable in the world. When you solve complex problems, that's really valuable in the world. And so that's right. to that's ignore right. the complex problems is actually to choose to ignore the greatest value creation potential. Yep, that's right. All right. Um, we, uh, we're out of time. Um, Taylor, do you want to do a one minute rapid fire on any of the rest of these or are we done? Um, we're at a max. Do you have a one minute performance max take? Uh, it's Facebook. Is it longer Google, Google's assault on Facebook. And I think they're really smart. And I think it's probably going to be a really interesting product. Okay, great. See, that's really good. Uh, here's one minute on Facebook remarketing to non-customers. It doesn't make sense anymore. With the right. pixel signal loss, get rid of it. Get If you want to separate out past customers uh, in your Facebook advertising and run that as a zone retention audience, that's fine. But at this point, I'm fully getting rid of like people who have been to the website in the last seven days. There's too much signal loss in the attribution. Consolidate your learnings in less ad sets. Baby yep. worth updates, Taylor? Anything uh, in less than a minute? Uh, six straight months of increased Facebook spend, return, uh, and net outcome for the business in the midst of this environment um, with zero attribution tools. And in post iOS 14, which means iOS 14 isn't the problem. Yep. Right? Well, there are just that there are ways to be disciplined and go solve other problems in ways that you, there is still opportunity out there. That's right. Own the own the challenge yourself. Don't don't uh, don't say that it's impossible because something else blocked your way. Um, okay, my last one, uh, freelancing. One more reflection on that. It doesn't give you the freedom you think it does. Uh, and I didn't necessarily think it was going to give me incredible freedom, but it, it can still be great. And I actually love my freelancing life right now. I think it's been really really good for me. I haven't been sure what the long term is for me, but I, I think it's been really good. But man, I've been as busy as I've ever been, and uh, it's still really challenging. And so there is no. It actually comes down to how you design your life and where you put boundaries in your life, not uh, which job structure you have probably. So there you go. All right. I think that's everything. We got through like 10 topics today. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, let's go to the outro. I think that's it. Thanks, Taylor. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. As always, uh, there's a couple links in the show notes, the data newsletter, Maytap's Twitter account, if you want to go see that. Uh, we'll, we'll give him some love. Um, if you've been following the Attribution Wars, you can pretty much just uh, go anywhere on e-commerce Twitter and find that. Uh, but Taylor, uh, we appreciate you joining today very much. Anything you want to tell the people to go pursue besides Taylor Holiday on Twitter? Yeah, no, Taylor Holiday on Twitter. Um, no, go, go. It's so annoying. It's such an annoying answer. Go think about how to make your product 10 times better than it is today for an hour. I love an hour and think about how to make your product 10 times better than it is today for one hour. That's what I encourage you to do. I think that's fantastic. All right. Uh, if you like listening to this, please share it with somebody. Please rate, please review, review. All of those things are really helpful. Uh, otherwise, I think that's it. Thank you again to Taylor and to the crew who puts this out there every week. I don't mention them enough, but there's people who edit this and compile show notes and all that. And we sincerely appreciate that. Hope you've enjoyed it as always. And we'll see you next week.